I'm Katie Kempner, and welcome to Perspectives, which is a series of inspiring conversations with remarkable working women. And I am really excited for today's conversation with Elisa Kamahort-Page. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. So there's so many different ways we could start. I have so (laughs) many things to ask you. But I think maybe just to put everything in context, can we start by learning a little bit about your career journey? Oh, yes. My career journey is, um, I was using the term portfolio career before it was popular. Uh, I started out, I got a theater major in college and I pursued that life for a number of years. And then when I decided that I did not want to continue with that, uh, I moved out of New York. I came back to California. I was in the financial industry for seven years. And then I looked around and it was 1997. And I'm like, you know, this tech thing seems kind of big here in Silicon Valley. I guess I should see if I like that or have any aptitude for that. So I kind of leapt into tech. And, you know, everything I've done since then has been around the intersection of tech and media. Um, But uh, that was by then my third career already. (laughs) So I've hopped around a bit. So building communities is something that's so important to individuals and to brands. And it's something that you are really good at. You know, you were the architect of building the Blogger community, which was really critical to its success. So can you talk a little bit, please, on your thoughts on the power of community? And then forgive me for using this word that I'm about to use, but what makes an authentic community? Uh, <laughs> back in the day when Web 2.0 was the thing that people were talking about and social web tools were starting to come out. And that uh, originally that was blogging. And there were some online communities like Yahoo Groups and Tribe.net. This was before there was such a thing as social media. And I think there's a real difference between saying social media and the social web, with one having the emphasis on the word media and the other having the emphasis on the word social. Um, And I used to describe the transition to to, uh, Web 2.0 as as follows, that uh, and the difference between Web 2.0 and community, online community. Web 1.0 was broadcast. So people put up websites and they were telling you about themselves. And every company felt like they had to have a brochure or website. That's great. Web 2.0, you started to get the ability to talk back. So you posted a blog and people could leave comments. And you had a website and people could comment on it. But community is about a cycle of communication that is not just, I speak to you, you speak to me. The community must come with a sense of, I speak to you, you listen to me. You speak to me. I listen to you. I respond to you. You respond to me. And I always used to say that, you know, especially if you're building a large community, it's hard to make everyone happy. Um, So you're never going to be able to say yes to everything your community wants. But you can tell them you're thinking. You can be transparent about why you're doing what you're doing. You can ask them to come along on this journey with you and have them feel invested and involved. And that is, I think, the difference between a lot of social media and an actual social web and online community. And it's about that idea of it's a constant cycle of listening and speaking and responding and listening and speaking and responding. And when it comes to authenticity, and this has been coming up for me a lot lately, I've always thought that 
authenticity means that everything I say is true, but I don't have to say everything that's true. And everybody gets to draw their boundaries differently. For many, many years, I've been online and I will talk about every taboo subject. I talk about religion and politics and everything you can imagine. You know what I don't really talk about a lot is my family, my significant other. Um, you know, I just don't, that's just not interesting to me to talk about online. And it involves privacy of other people. And I just don't like, that just doesn't interest me. So I say, every, I don't think you would have to work very hard to figure out what I think about all sorts of things going on in the world. But you might have to work pretty hard to figure out like, what my relationship is or what my family is like or any of that. And, you know, that's just as authentic as other kinds of folks who talked all about their family. Of course, there's a whole, the rise of the mommy blogger is a very hot topic right now for some reason. And and they talked all day about their family, but you know what? They didn't always like to talk about religion or politics or whatever, because they were going for connection and finding universal truths in a different way than I was. So, and it's all authentic. It's all good. I mean, that that's such an amazing point. And if there's people that want to build their communities, and obviously it's different if it's sort of your personal brand or you are a brand, mm-hmm. but understanding the points that you just made, do you have any tips for people where they can get started or or how they can amplify once they are started already? Yeah, I think the number one thing to think about if you want to build a community, and I don't actually think it's that different as an individual versus as on behalf of a brand is why would someone be in your community? What's in it for them? And what are you offering? Not just asking a community requires TLC. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a spigot. You can turn on and off when you need amplification. If you need amplification, just pay for some advertising. Like, you know, that's not what a community is for. So you need to be clear on why you even want one. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to offer them? What do you hope to, what's feeding them? What's feeding you? It's the mutuality is what makes community. It's not merely the idea that they can talk to you or you can talk to them. It's the mutual relationship. And so a lot of times people talk about their community, but what they really mean is their audience. And you Mm -hmm. know what? That's okay. It's okay to have an audience. Like I want an audience and a community. These things, they're totally fine but they have different requirements, I think. That's a great point. So unblog her really when you were building that and when before it was acquired, you were really focusing on the community aspect, right? But it's also building an audience because you need people to be in the community, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because we basically had really three customer sets. We had our investors. Once you start taking investors, they're a customer. You have to serve them. We had the sponsors and brand advertisers. And we had to find a way to build trust um, because they were being told that the blogosphere was a wild, wild west and not brand safe. So we had to establish standards of practice that made sense. And then we had what I considered to be our sort of top priority customer set, which was the actual women, mostly women, creators and bloggers who were in our wider community and then in our publishing network. Now, they themselves had audiences and communities of their own. Um, And that's what created the aggregated mass channel that allowed us to compete 
for the bigger brand dollars, which allowed us to pay the bloggers and ourselves. So without them and their communities, we wouldn't have had the wherewithal to continue building ours and to be serving them and offering them features and 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 um, opportunities. So uh, it was really important to kind of be clear on where we had to prioritize. Where was the real source, the lifeblood of what we were doing? And it was working with that community of bloggers and creators. Um, I guess today they would be called influencers, but that was our argument back then before that market really existed. And I'd like to say that when we started, the thing that was utterly different about us, there were other people placing ads on blogs. What was utterly different about us was that we aggregated our network together and we wanted you if you had 100 readers and we wanted you if you had a million readers. And we had people everywhere in between because it was the aggregated force of the community that mattered. And we created a business model for women who in the existing solutions, no one would have given them that business model. And when you combine that with spotlighting them and exposing their work and finding ways to help all boats rise, they got to graduate to the next level. And, and some people never wanted to. That's the thing. Some people never wanted to run ads at all. They just really wanted to come to our conferences and be on our website, and talk to each other. And some people were fine being at the size they were, but some people really wanted to scale. And we gave them the tools to do that. For a lot of people, right? I mean, you created a lot of stars, a lot yes. of personality. Well, I, they, they created their, they were the ones with the personality. They were the ones who spoke to their audience directly and their community directly. What we did was give them the tools to grow, to scale, to get more exposure, to build. Um, and so I, I like to think of it more that way. That is a better way of putting it. So <laughs> you yourself are a creator as well. And in yes. And you you talked about um, you know being very open with a lot of your opinions online, and you co-authored a book, Roadmap for Revolutionaries: Resistance, Activism, and Advocacy for All, which in this day and age seems like very important topic. Can you talk about the book a little, please? Yeah. So it's unfortunately it's a little evergreen, and we always used to say that. Uh, we would know Blogger had succeeded when we maybe weren't necessary anymore. And I almost feel the same way about the book because the book is about how to help you triage amongst all the issues that you care about, how to triage your efforts and really focus to become a much more ev um, effective everyday activist for the things you care most about. And that it isn't just about any one way of contributing. You can contribute dollars. You can contribute your feet on the street. You can contribute your professional skills. You can contribute your platform. There are a lot of ways to make a difference. And you just need to pick, what do I want to work on? How do I want to contribute? The book was not my idea. I, when I went to the CEO of the company that acquired Blogger a week before the 2016 election, and I said, I think it's time for me to gracefully start to decline my, like, can I shift to being a consultant next year and stay for about six months and like gracefully ebb away? Um, and I did have an idea to write a book, but it was something totally different. And I thought I knew what the world was going to look like a week later. And then it didn't look like that. And one of my friends came to me with this idea of this book about helping people channel their energy so that it would be more sustainable. Um, because one of two things could easily have happened 
people could have gotten super worked up after the 2016 election. And then the midterms could go really well. And then they could just say, oh, see, fixed it. And they could get like out of there. Or they could see that it was a long path to work to get the world they want and get burnt out. And so we're like, how can we help people manage their energy and manage their effort to, to get in this game and stay in this game for a longer term? And so I said yes to her and I invited our third co-author to join us so we could have a more well-rounded perspective. And it really is designed to be you know, open to the page that suits you most and get the information you need. And it is evergreen because there are just always things we all would like to make better about the world. And I think this is certainly a time that that's incredibly obvious with so many issues people can jump on. I think it's wonderful that you know, you say you can sort of like pick and choose because people do get very burnt out. You get very passionate about something and then there's, it feels many things feel extremely overwhelming. So mm-hmm. do you even bother or do you not even think about it and go on Instagram, you know? And I think a lot of people sort of have that feeling between their own mental health and also trying to do good and make a difference. Well, I've been writing about this and also on my podcast a lot lately, especially around the Middle East situation right now, about this cry for people to speak and this assumption that you know what someone feels or thinks or is experiencing based on what you see them say and not say in social media. And I have a little bit different philosophy, which is that a lot of us think that people are sitting around waiting for our opinion. And a lot of times they're not. And we don't have to weigh in on everything. And there's a lot of popping off on the internet. And it's not always for the good. It's often ahistorical or uneducated. And it's okay to not know. And it's okay to not speak. And if you don't speak online, I don't know what you're doing in your real life. I don't know where you funnel your donations. I don't know how you deal with your family. I don't, I don't know anything about, for a lot of people, their in real life activation. And if someone doesn't know my heart, which would be pretty understandable, I've really taken to sharing more of my in-depth perspective in my podcast and newsletter than on um, public social media. If they don't know my heart and make assumptions about me and my character based on me sharing my Wordle score and my daily habit tracker and all that, that they are entitled to do that. And I'm entitled to not give a fuck. I don't know if you bleep things out or not, but like, I just, um, you know, we are each, like I said it earlier, we're each entitled to our own boundaries. And I understand the cries to speak, but I would rather someone be extremely circumspect about what they say online versus say stuff that they, they don't really know what they're talking about. Like we all became epidemiology experts Now we're all geopolitical experts. Like we all, through reading a few things on the internet where, frankly, the amount of mis and disinformation has just continues to expand. I am very, you know, I have to work very hard to validate what I think is the truth before I'm willing to speak about it because you cannot count on what you see online. And this comes as someone who, from someone who was a digital utopian 20 years ago who thought, the internet was going to solve, you know, and internet media and internet communication specifically was going to solve so many problems. And uh, I think for a variety of reasons, instead, we have to become much more careful. Yeah, because it's very dangerous to be spouting opinions 
on things that you really don't understand or know about. So that that's an amazing point. But let's let's talk about your podcast, the op-ed page. Can you tell us about it, please? Yeah. So it's kind of a play on my last name, Paige. And um, and I I really I know that I could write a newsletter and record a podcast that were much more you know, focused and consistent and always kind of about one thing. And that might do more to support my consulting business or whatever it is. But what I really missed about the blogosphere was the ability to talk about what was striking me right there in the moment, what was on my mind, what was on my heart, and to be able to talk about it and and realizing that I didn't care about talking about it with a super large audience. I cared about talking about it with people who cared about what I might have to say, because let's face it, lots of people don't. I mean, I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking like everyone cares what we think. Well, they don't, you know? Um, So both the op-ed page and my This Weekish newsletter are really about what is happening in politics, in pop culture, in technology, in activism. I'm into all of those things. I care about all of these things and I see connections between all of those things. I see the interplay of media, technology, and politics and activism and perspective, they so influence one another. And so I just think it's always interesting to talk about, um, you know, how the interplay of those things. One of my talks that I give now is about, you know, the life lessons I learned from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is the best television show of all time. Don't, don't, don't come at me. Um, and it's, and I think that we consume so much and the pandemic only made it worse. Like we all sat around and like consumed so much media and we are absorbing lessons from that media, whether we're consciously thinking about it or not. So I like to talk, like I like to make the unconscious conscious and say, well, what are we learning from shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or, you know, any number of other shows. And sometimes it's good. And sometimes we're learning lessons that like there are shows I stopped watching because I'm like, you know, I am learning a lesson from this that I don't like and don't want to have. Um, so it's time to turn it off. And I just, you know, I just want people to think really consciously about those lessons. So if people want to listen to your podcast, subscribe to your newsletter, how do they do it? Well, um, one thing you can do is go to my bio site, so it's bio.site slash Elisa CP, and they're all listed there. But the newsletter's on Substack. It's called This Weekish. The podcast is everywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called the op-ed page. Uh, and my overall professional website is at least a cp.com. Now, you, before you go, you have to tell us, I know you have a new project that has to do with the now of work. Can you share a little bit about that, please? Sure. I love to tease. I love, uh, I used to call it tweezing on Twitter or tease booking on Facebook. I have to think of a new one for Substack. Is it tease stacking, sub teasing? I don't know. But um, so I'm working on a project and a lot of people talk about the future of work. And I'm like, why do we have to keep saying the future? Like it is now. Here's what I see. I see that when we started Blogger, we had to build trust and relationship between the bloggers and the brands and advertisers because they didn't trust one another and they didn't see how they could build a healthy ecosystem together, a business model together. And we helped build that ecosystem and that business model. And I see the same thing happening today with experienced professionals who through, you know, the last 20 years, we've seen so many disruptions to the workplace, 9-11, the dot-com bust, the great recession, the rise of the gig economy, 
And now, of course, the lockdown, Great Recession, the pushback on return to office. And there's a trust broken between employers and experienced professionals who kept everything running during the pandemic. And now the reward they are seeing is that they're being told to come back to two-hour commutes and being tracked on when they are and aren't in the office, even though we all managed to keep it all moving for two and a half years. Uh, and so it, it crystallizes around return to office, but it's really around this issue of, are we serious about letting people live? Are we serious about, we, you know, we've called it work-life balance, work-life integration. What it really is, is that people get to a certain level of experience and they want to offer that experience to people, but they maybe don't want to do it the way other, you know, employers and companies are used to. And mm -hmm. is there a way we can build an ecosystem of people who are just really interested in sharing their talents and being well compensated for it and letting go of some of the way it used to work and it used to be. And that's about trust and that's about working together. And so I really want to see if we can help people do that because it's not the future. It's right now. This is a huge issue and conflict in the workforces of today. And if employers want to keep the best people, they're going to have to be able to figure that out. So. Absolutely. And I think they, you know, and it, I think they think that, I think they think a, th a couple of things. I think they think money, like maybe money will keep the best people, but it won't. I think we have already seen that the best people will say, you can't pay me enough to go back to a life that was miserable um, beca because of everything it didn't do for me uh, holistically. But also, I think they also think sometimes, well, I don't need that. <laughs> now I got it. <clears throat> But also, I think that also sometimes they think, I don't need the best people. I just need the next best people. But what is that saying when we're really willing to throw away the best experience because of a little thing like not figuring out how to manage hybrid work culturally? Because that's what it's basically about. They figured it out logistically and, and administratively, but they didn't figure it out culturally. And it's hard, but I think it can be done. And organizations are the best and people are the best when they're surrounded by the smartest people. My, um, my mentor, Chuck Porter, taught me that, you know, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, you know, hire people who have been where you want to go to, you know, and, and see, see. And you know what? A lot of times they won't take that job with you because just because you pay them more, they'll take it because they can, they see your passion and they can get passionate about it too. And they want to help you get there but that requires a different kind of trusting relationship. So just to end, is there one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life and your career that you can please share with us? Well, my favorite piece of advice to share came from an entrepreneur, wonderful entrepreneur and now investor named Katerina Fake. She co-founded Flickr and subsequently other companies. Um, we met with her before we raised our first round of venture funding at Blogger. And she had just sold Flickr to Yahoo. And a lot of people thought they sold too early and they, oh, they could have made so much more money. And she said something that was specific to making the decision about fundraising, but I apply it to a lot of things in life. She said, you know, you need to prioritize people, then terms, then value. And what she meant by that was that people first, like you are going to, whoever you take money from, you're going to be connected to them. You're going to have to, they need to trust you. You need to trust them. This is a relationship. And so I apply this to partnerships, to jobs, to relationships of any kind. Like if I get a bad vibe about the people, I'm out, oh, man, I just don't, 
I'm too old for that, right? But then the terms versus valuation thing is really interesting. And what she really meant was make sure that there is fairness and mutuality, that it feel whatever the outcome, you feel good about the way you worked together. It doesn't matter, you know, you could have a really high valuation, high potential income or revenue or result dangled in front of you. And that can happen or so many things can happen that make it not happen, right? But at the end of the day, you want to have felt good while you were working to get there. You want to feel that how you worked to get there was fair and equitable. And um, then whatever the outcome is, it's much easier to live with if the terms were fair. So don't get seduced by some really high and high in the sky promise of valuation. Really think about the terms of work together and prioritize that. Thank you, Elisa. There's so much here to think about. I really appreciate you talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. It was great talking to you. 